you have to pick the humans that you want to work with first and then find repertoire and music around that. You have to work with the people that you like. Hi, I'm Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 89 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry. On today's episode of the show, I'm joined by the Woodwire duo, who's made up of Hannah Leffler and Cheyenne Cruz. They play a bass clarinet and flute duo, of all things, and they talk about how that got started and, and why you should consider starting an ensemble, not just with the instrumentation or the music that you maybe want, but really considering the people that you'd like to play with, and I thought that was super profound. We also talk a lot about their new album called In The Loop, which they've generously provided me with two copies to give away. If you're interested in winning one of those, head on over to clarinet.com and join the email mailing list. I always draw randomly from this list for giveaways. If you'd like to check out the music uh, or order your own copy, you can do this at woodwireduo.com. As I just mentioned, the album's called In The Loop, and that's kind of a play on the fact that they actually use a looper pedal a lot. And if you're not familiar with what that is, it's something that guitarists often use to, to literally create musical loops and then play over them and uh, improvise over them and, and just sort of expand on the music with, with electronics. It's something I'm really interested in, even though I actually am very bad at using a looper pedal. I've, I've had one for quite a while now, and uh, it's honestly just collecting dust. So I was really excited to talk to them, and I, I'm hoping to bring it out again and, and actually learn how to use it properly after this conversation. There's also another special guest in the background. You might hear one of their dogs barking a little bit, but uh, it wasn't enough to warrant uh, re-recording any sections of the interview, and it's uh, just part of the territory with podcasting that, that sort of happens sometimes. You know, we're often chatting. Uh, I, I'm at my home, and, and usually the guests are at their home as well, and it's just something that happens with, with podcasting. Today's episode of the show is brought to you in part by Dario Woodwinds and their new weekly trivia show called Don't Blow It. You can check it out every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, and if you know the right answers to some of the questions, you might even have the chance to win some amazing new gear. If you haven't yet tried D'Addario's new reserve clarinet reeds, uh, you're really in for a treat. They're using some really amazing new technology and manufacturing techniques that are helping achieve super consistent results. These reeds are now available for E-flat, B-flat, and bass clarinet, and you can pick up a box at your local music store. Or, if you want to order online, you can head to clarinet.com reeds to buy a box right now. Thanks so much for listening, and please enjoy today's episode of the podcast. Show notes can be found at www.clarinet.com slash 89. First, let's talk a little bit about sort of what it is for you guys as musicians that, that found you together working on this project, and also maybe a little bit of your sort of history. We want to start with Hannah, maybe? Sure. So I, uh, we met at University of North Texas getting our doctorates. And we were actually in a uh, woodwind quintet together, kind of the graduate quintet there, and just immediately hit it off. And we're best friends in about a week. So we wanted a chance to keep playing together and basically made one up and then just mm -hmm. kind of thought it was really cool and went from there. Our first performance ever was on one of my doctoral recitals. Yes. So <laughs> inaugural Woodwired. Yeah, and, and I think like because we played chamber music together and we got along so well. That's one of the lessons that I've learned in chamber music is that you have to pick the humans that you want to work with first, and then find repertoire and music around that, rather than saying, "Oh, I want to play the you know particular piece, and so let's go find a cellist." Like you have to work with the people that you like. So we made flute and bass clarinet work. <laughs> so that's that's really interesting, and I want to unpack that a little bit um, as far as the, the people that you work with being so important. And I think this goes for any ensemble, whether it be kind of like a rock band or a, 
you know, a, a string quartet or anything like that. So what is something that you guys do to try and uh, ensure the highest level of not only musical collaboration, but also, you know, personal cooperation? And I imagine there's a lot of business stuff that goes into this. So so what's sort of a secret of, of that sort of relationship? Well, I think, number one, you have to be OK being real with one another, you know, like and, and the electronics keep us honest in that way in rehearsals, at least, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we always joke about if we were playing through something and it was like, well, you were rushing there. And like, no, you were rushing there. And we have a recording that we could play. <laughs> so there's a level of truth. But at the same time, knowing that it comes from a, a good hearted place and knowing that the whole idea is to make the product as good as it can be. Um, and so I think important. I I think for us, um, first of all, we're just incredibly close and really good friends, and that helps a lot. Um, but we also both know each other well enough to kind of make up for the other one when they're having an off day in any number of ways, whether that's a performing off day or really stressed out or tired or something like that. I think we both do a really good job of kind of rising to the occasion when we need to, because we kind of sense what the other one is feeling that day or, you know, in a rehearsal event or a performance. Mm -hmm. um, and we kind of both take the lead at different times, whether it comes to composing, arranging, rehearsing, or just sitting down and being like, we have to send 50 emails, emails today. today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But also, I think it's important that you hang out and spend time together outside of a musical context. Like, um, I teach at the University of Texas at Arlington, and I have all of my students do clarinet quartets or trios, some sort of like clarinet chamber music. And I find that the ones that are the most successful are the ones that are friends and that spend time together and I can tell that they have a, a relationship outside of just the piece that they're playing because they connect on so many more levels and that believe it or not really does come out in the music making you can really tell if there are like two people in a group that hate each other because <laughs> you know the aura just kind of stinks up the room so I think the most successful part of chamber musicianship is getting to know and being friends with the people you're working with having a Good relationship, yes. So you guys have a new album out. It's called In The Loop, and it's now available on iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, CD Baby, and Amazon. And I'm, I think directly from your website, too. Is that correct? Yes, yes. absolutely. Yeah, so you can check it out at woodwireduo.com. So tell me a bit about this recording project and uh, what music is on there and sort of what techniques you used and what it was like start to finish. Well, uh, there are 10 tracks on the album and nine out of the 10 are originally composed by either myself or Hannah or a combination of myself and Hannah. And really it was, um, it would essentially started as sort of a creative outlet for us because, uh, we made it happen and there was this gap couple of years between when I finished my doctorate and when I found a job. You know, as probably some of the listeners out there are experiencing or getting ready to experience or have experienced at some point in their life. Um, so I felt like I needed something creative because once you graduate from school, it's like you've been playing in all these ensembles. You've been writing these high level projects about Brahms and, um, you know, really immersing yourself in music and hard work. And then when you graduate, it's kind of like what do you do? <laughs> so I, we just kind of wanted something to funnel our creative energy into. And um, I had always been sort of moderately, mildly obsessed with Michael Lowenstern, um, which I know you're familiar with his music. I believe, isn't he the the music at the beginning of the podcast, even? It's from his album called Sway, actually. Yeah, I love his stuff, too. 
So I just thought he was brilliant and um, he works a lot with electronics and looping and I was just always really inspired by him. And so we started by transcribing some of his pieces. We transcribed um, uh, a couple of the works from the 10 Children album, number three and number nine, and they worked really well as a duet and he was really awesome and gave us some pointers and help. Did you get to work with him? We uh, just contacted him and kind of told him what we were doing and asked him if we could adapt those for our instrumentation. And he was super cool about it and was mm -hmm. like, do whatever you want and play it. And, and so we did. He was, he was really cool about it. Yeah. And so after we did a couple of those and then we realized, well, maybe we shouldn't just be the Michael Lowenstern cover band. <laughs> Although that sounds like a really fun job. Um, so then we started branching out into writing our own music and tailoring it specifically to flute and bass clarinet and playing with those textures and colors because it's awesome. Like you can have this beefy bottom <coughs> bass part from the bass clarinet and then, you know, flute does really well at taking the melody and then we can fill in all kind of these middle textures and it just works really fantastically as a duo pairing. And as you might imagine, nothing is written for flute and bass clarinet hardly. Yes. Very little, so, especially with electronics. So we just decided, well, let's make some. <laughs> Did you guys have a background in composition or songwriting or something like that? I had taken some composition classes in college, um, but Cheyenne is just, she actually does more of the kind of original composing. I do kind of more of the adapting and arranging that we do. Um, but she's just endlessly creative and has constant ideas and so she just said oh I'm gonna take a stab <laughs> I'm gonna take a stab at it and she did and then she'll have these great ideas and and write something and then we together go through and kind of edit listen change a lot of the flute solo stuff I will sit there and write with the flute you know in my hands just seeing what works and what sounds good and um but but and this is sort of my first venture into composition was for Woodwired because, like I said, we were sort of frustrated with the lack of repertoire for flute and bass clarinet and especially that combination with electronics. So I was just like, whatever, let's make it happen. It makes me think of two things. And the first one is, you know, some of the best uh, arrangements of, of um, ensembles have come out of sort of a need, you know, like famously uh, the uh, Messian Quartet for the End of Time was actually people who happened to be in that concentration camp. It's not like he had some other ensemble. Those are the people that he had, right? And it worked out really well. Maybe it hasn't become a standard arrangement, but it's definitely very interesting and unique. Um, but, but I'm also wondering, so with, with your music, though, so what, what constitutes an idea that could turn into a piece or a, do you call them pieces or songs on your album? I should just straight get that straight. <laughs> well, yeah, we call them pieces. Okay. I mean, some of them are in song form. So some of them, some of them are, but some of them aren't. Um, what would be the difference between a piece and sort of a song form? Like I would think of the songs on Michael Lowenstern's uh, 10 children, more, more like songs. Maybe he calls them pieces, but they come across as, as a song. They have sort of like a verse and a chorus sometimes. And, and so is, do you think about that when you write or the structure or what comes first, the melody? Yeah, I, I absolutely think about the structure first. And so the pieces that are more like song have a verse, a chorus, they go back and forth between that, maybe a bridge in the middle where it changes key, and then go going back to verse and chorus and hearing that thing you know over and over again. So if it contains that structure, which a lot of our pieces do, that qualifies it as song. I think the piece sort of covers more broad ground, like everything is a piece, and then it might have a smaller definition of, well, it's specifically a song form. Um, 
And we do have, you know, we have some, we do have a piece, I would call it a piece of multiple movements, um, Malala mm -hmm. um, on the CD that's, you know, a little more all encompassing and um, kind of covers her life and things and is a little more expansive in that way. Well, and also because one of our main tools is a looper, by nature, the pieces that we perform and write are repetitive. So a loop, just to sort of back up and talk about what that is, um, Essentially, so we play into some microphones, like say we'll play a little phrase of music and then our looper will record that and play that back endlessly until we tell it to stop. So we'll do that and sometimes we'll layer that four or five layers deep. So maybe we'll lay down a percussion line just to sort of start the piece and then a bass line and then fill in some chords and then we'll improvise on top of that. That's sort of the format of our second piece on the album, Bulgama. And the first piece on the album, yeah. mm -hmm. Bear. Um, so that's sort of a standard format for us. And so by nature, it's repetitive because you're hearing those same chords come back around. And that's sort of our main structure. But not all of them are loop-based. Um, for example, Nebula Mosaic is based around delay, which a delay effect. And uh, a lot of the effects that we use are available for electric guitar. right? So all the pedals that an electric guitarist might use in a band, um, we just put our instruments through that. <laughs> so it's, it's possible, yeah. <laughs> How do you plug your flute and bass clarinet into the effect pedals? Uh, we have, so we have um, what are called soft steps, and we use their, the Keith, Keith McMillan um, company soft steps, and we, we route them through software on our computer and through a mixer, um, and then each, basically each piece has its own what we call a concert that is pre-programmed where we have gone in and, and programmed each one of our pedals for that piece and what it's going to turn on and turn off. And so sometimes it's for an effect that we have routed through our software. Sometimes it's to start a loop or end a loop or modulate the pitch of the loop or um, something like that. So each piece is really different and what our pedals do for each piece are really different. So, our so pedal essentially boards are like we have like a digital pedal mm -hmm. board. Right. Um, and so we change it. So our physical pedals that we have are just sort of dummy, empty clicks. Like a blank slate. Yeah. And then the software that we have, which is called Main Stage, it's actually just like a $30 software that you can download from the Apple Store. It's not anything um, high level or incredibly expensive. And, and it's got all these uh, pedals that you can download. And it has the, it actually has the entire logic library of sounds and mates. So it's really friendly for live performance. It works very well for live performance. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I've actually used Mainstage before, but in a different context. And uh, it is a great, great program. But um, so for someone who's looking to get into this, like Mainstage is a Mac based program. I'm sure there's some sort of PC based program. But but what other things do you need to, to get started with this? I mean, do you need a lot of technical knowledge or uh, I'm assuming you need a microphone? Yes, you do need a microphone. And honestly, the way that we started is, once again, I was just obsessed with Michael Lowenstern and sort of <laughs> looked at his blogs a lot. And he talked about a lot of the equipment he uses. So essentially, everything you need is you need a microphone to start. Right. And so that takes the sound and puts it um, into your computer. And then in order for that sound to be processed, you need an audio interface, um, which you can use. There are cheap ones that you can get like little uh focus right scarlets with just one little input for your microphone i think those are like in the realm of 99 dollars um 
So you need an audio interface to process the sound coming from the microphone that plugs into your computer. Uh, and you can do it with a PC or a Mac. We obviously prefer Mac. I think it's a lot stronger for this, but people do it with PCs. Um, and then you need some sort of output, like a speaker. So that's essentially all you need to start processing music. You can add foot pedals if you want to make the triggering easier, but you can trigger with your hand by clicking the mouse pad. And you can make it happen with as little as that much equipment. And we always kind of say, too, if you want to use, you know, looping as a um, great educational tool and a great practice tool. So you can also, if you're not trying to perform music like this, if you just want to use it to practice and have fun with, you can do it with an iPhone and earbuds if you want, because your iPhone has a microphone in it. So, um, you know, it's if you want to just play with it for fun, it, you know, you can start at that level. And then and then what Cheyenne was just saying is the bare minimum of what you need just to perform for people to hear it in that way. Well, something that I do even when I practice, for example, like because um, uh, music that for clarinet is arranged from cello, for example, like some of the Bach cello suites and things. I like to put on a really long delay or reverb and then listen to the, the intonation of the chords, you know? Yeah. So there is value to, to practicing this way for sure. Um, so much. Absolutely. And we like, I, I have my students sometimes practice with a looper. I have them download uh, an app called Loopy HD. I think there's a free version of it too if you don't want to pay the $2.99 or whatever that it is. <laughs> but you can record yourself playing, um, well, number one, just playing along with a steady beat like and creating your own steady beat, being your own metronome, because I find that sometimes students who have issues with pulse or they're able to keep up with a metronome, but when they are responsible for creating their own steady pulse, you know, that is sometimes a challenge. So even just creating and playing along with your own steady pulse is a great way to practice with that or playing orchestral excerpts. Like you can play the first clarinet part along with the second clarinet part. And so you can see like, you know, you can play the first and second clarinet parts to Mendelssohn Scherzo and see if you can stay in time with yourself and see if you're in tune with yourself and stuff like that. So it's a really valuable practice tool as well. Well, a lot of times students have trouble um, internalizing the music. And I realized this recently, I had this, the student who's preparing for a really basic level exam, but he has to do some clap back on that exam. And I noticed that he could clap the rhythms from the page, but he couldn't clap back what I was doing. And so I, the solution for, for this student anyways, was for him to actually write his own rhythms and then try and communicate them to me without showing me what's on the paper. And I think he realized as he struggled with this, what was wrong. And he actually fixed it within that lesson. Like he was able to go, okay, wait a second, I need to, but I'm going to get him on the looper or something like that and see if he can create a, a steady beat, you know? We use that a lot actually for, even if you want to work on improvisation or scales, or you want a fun way to practice scales, create your own fun rhythm. You can do multiple layers of that and then play scales on top of it. But it is, we always talk about, it's shockingly difficult to clap four even quarter notes <laughs> yeah. and you don't realize until you're trying to play other things on top of it. And we do this in workshops a lot where we have someone stand up and come, you know, clap a rhythm into the microphone and then play something with it. And every, if you miss something or if you slightly crunch two notes together, you notice that every single time you play with it. <laughs> and it gets worse when you add other stuff in, you know? Yes, for sure. So it's really, really valuable for our, both of our rhythm has gotten 
a lot better. A lot better. <laughs> and we can kind of call each other out on it too. I'm, I'm going to need you to not rush that because then I literally can't play my part on top of this. <laughs> well, and, and I think what it provides, and like you said with your student who had this realization, what it provides is instantaneous feedback. Yeah. And, and true feedback. It's kind of like I compare it to looking at yourself in a mirror under a really harsh light <laughs> because you get that immediate feedback. And, you know, and I'm sure you've experienced this, too, in lessons like a student will play something and you'll say, oh, that was rushed. And they'll look at you like they don't believe you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's true. And, and the, with the looper, you get that immediate feedback. You don't have to talk about it. You don't have to analyze it. It's just like there it is. Beat four was too early. And let's listen to it again because it's on loop. <laughs> so it, it gives you instantaneous feedback about what you sound like, how good your rhythm is. And so I find that that's also really fantastic for people who have a fear of listening to themselves on recordings. You know, if you play a recital and you're like, oh, God, I don't want to put that CD in. I've got to give myself two weeks to listen to it. It, it allows you to just be like, OK, that's what I sound like. And I either like it or I don't like it. And if I don't like it, then I can change something specific about it instead of having this like existential dread of like, oh, what do I sound like? In and that, that was me. I, I have always waited multiple weeks to listen to any performance that I have played just because I don't <laughs> I dread it and, and Cheyenne is of the, the camp that as we're in the car driving home from a concert we have to pop the CD in and listen to it and see how we did and <laughs> it, this has been good for me because I you know have to listen to myself constantly and it's even you know at my level has really gotten rid of that fear of hearing myself because it's just, it's just, you know, I'm playing with myself in performance all of the time and, and it's, it's really good. So how do you think that students who want to get started with this, or maybe not even students, but just people who, who want to get started with this sort of music creation should go about it? I mean, it's, it's, it's not something like you can just go get lessons in, in looping. I mean, maybe you should be able to, but it seems like it's not possible. So where do you begin once you got the equipment? What do you, what do you do next? Well, number one, I would say listen, listen to music. And that, I mean, that's like, like we've said a listen couple times, we listen music, to, yeah. yeah, we listen to Lowenstern and, and a wide variety of looping music, but then Woodwired, just, definitely Woodwired. Woodwired, <laughs> listen to Woodwired. But there are, there are tons of guitarists and popular artists that use this tool as well. And you can sort of translate their skills into what you want to do. And then just experiment. Just, you know, that's the thing about it. You're not going to, if nothing's going to happen to you if you don't like what you put in the looper, you know, just, just kind of conceive of something you think sounds cool. We both have ideas all the time for pieces and they will come from listening to the radio and hearing about a book that inspires us or a person that inspires us. And, and one of us will be like, we need to write a piece about that. Or we'll hear a, an effect in main stage and we'll go, oh, that would make a cool piece. And then you just have to experiment. We have some really bad ideas often. And, and we, oh, yeah. we have scratched pieces well after they were written because we just didn't like them. Um, but nothing bad happened to us because of that. So <laughs> experiment, just try. And, mm -hmm. and you never know what, what might sound really, really cool. Well, it's funny. I remember I took an online class about songwriting and um, one of the things I talked about is how he thinks that songwriting should actually be called song rewriting because there's, there's no such thing as just sitting down and writing a song. You got to do it like a hundred times and then you might come up with something that works, you know? We edit pieces right before we perform them exactly. sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and kind of like the way that we got started is we started by just transcribing Michael Lowenstern stuff, you know? Um, so I, I think a great way to start is 
try and recreate something that you like already, something that exists in the world. See if you can recreate it. Can you accurately figure out what the chords are? Can you accurately figure out what the rhythm is, what the meter is, stuff like that, and then just input it. And just through that process, you'll gain a huge understanding of how your software works, of how good your own rhythm and aural skills are. Um, and not that you can't work with sheet music that exists already. You don't have to sit down and transcribe everything by ear. Um, but you know, you could just pick like a, like a jazz standard tune that has very easy, you know, do a little like blues mm-hmm. progression and something that you're ready for what it is and see if you can just recreate that. And then along the way, you'll gain your own sort of creativity and be able to bring your own things to it. You know, I almost laugh because I know there's some classically minded people out there just rolling their eyes right now. Oh, pop music, jazz, whatever. But you know what? I I used to think that way. And then when I was in university, I really started getting into contemporary music. And one of the things I did was I recorded my own version of New York Counterpoint. And uh, which is, if you don't know, it's a piece by uh, Steve Reich, who wrote like an 11 part layered clarinet piece. It's around you know, 10 minutes long and you're supposed to just play with the tape, but I didn't quite match the tone of the guy on the tape and it wasn't quite how I wanted it to be. So I made my own. And I tell you, that gave me, or I tell you, that gave me a whole new appreciation for what this takes, you know? And I think at any level of minimalism too, I think one of the problems with minimalism, and maybe you guys can give some feedback on this, but it requires a different kind of stamina. I mean, you need to be able to play a pattern, uh, you know, for example, in some Philip Glass piece or Steve Reich or something like that maybe 200 times and it <laughs> needs to be perfect each time, yes. you know, that's, yeah. that's hard. <laughs> it, it definitely requires. And, and for us, because, you know, we are recording something and then it's playing back over and over again. And then we're playing something else with it. It is like, it's amazing how the level of perfection to perfectly record that loop will, you know, how high the pressure is when we're performing that something, you know, if we squeak, it's going to happen. And by we, she means me. Because nah. flute doesn't mean. <laughs> flute doesn't I like that if we squeak. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay, squeak's the wrong word but, for but me. But if, things, if bad things happen. But, you know, we've played, we will also play in, you know, we've played in bars and art galleries and, you know, a lot of different kind of venues in addition to, you know, kind of standard performance halls. And, you know, we had a motorcycle go by one time in the middle of recording a loop and that motorcycle came back every, every time Mars, yeah and you know we kind of liked it it you know you kind of just have to be we have to be perfectionist about it but also be accepting of things happening because even though it's some of it is recorded stuff that we're doing you kind of have to accept the imperfection just like you do when you're just you know performing a live classical piece you know Mm -hmm. things are going to go wrong sometimes and you kind of just have to roll with it well and I think what's the important takeaway from that is the level of consistency that you gain like you're talking about with New York Counterpoint right like your consistency of articulation has to be perfect 200 times in a row not just on the very first note you know when you start that favorite concertino B flat that one has to be perfect but to do it perfectly 200 300 times in a row just really elevates your playing level and and that translates to every aspect of uh, of your performance. And I think because of that, because we have to do this stuff live, 
you know, if we do squeak, then it stays on the recording and we have to listen to it every eight bars. And so it makes you very aware of your own limitations, but it gives you a very real sense of where you are in your own playing. But it's made even me like in the past few years that we've been doing Woodwired, it's made me such a more consistent player that like when we recorded some of the tracks on the album, we did several of them in one take just because Mm -hmm. we were used to doing that live. And so there was no point in like, splicing anything because mm-hmm. that's just how it goes well it's hilarious you guys mentioned the the motorcycle going by because uh one of the, the things i remember seeing two years ago i had laurie friedman on the podcast she's a um, she's from montreal she's a uh bass clarinet contrabass clarinet uh clarinet sort of um superstar up here she plays all very experimental music and improvisation but anyways um she the moment i realized that she wasn't just a great musician but like actually maybe some sort of genius was <laughs> was uh i watched her concert in calgary here and she was doing a live improvisation which was just first of all it was just off the hook but there was a sound on like as she was improvising there was a squeak in the stage and she is so attuned to what was going on that she actually ended up using this squeak in a musical context like another instrument <laughs> and improvising with it for for the rest of the the piece it was amazing and I never would have thought that, but she even was like, you know, matching the pitch and doing weird echoey sort of effects with it. It was it was amazing. So, yeah, you've got to have the the stamina and the endurance and the, the creativity to hear these things and and act upon them if they well, occur. Yes. And our our uh, our computer, you know, is a is an entity of itself. It, it has a name. <laughs> he, he is sentient. He has a name. His yes. name is Woodward G. Effington, the third. And he has a whole personality and, and sometimes, you know, if you work with electronic music, you know this, but it, you know, sometimes things just don't work quite right, you know, and you kind of have no to reason at all. shut everything yeah. down and turn it back on and um, then it works just fine. And um, so we always kind of joke that he's a third chamber music member and sometimes he's really terrible and hard to work with. Um, but we had to, you know, we've had to get really good at um, not only improvising communication between us while we're performing, if something goes wrong with the computer, who's going to handle it while the other one tries to keep going or who's going to, you know, take care of something, but also kind of with the computer, just quickly figuring out what to do with our feet or hands or pedals, you know, just to, if something didn't go right in a loop or something didn't sync right, how to take a loop out and add another one in. And we've had to get really, really good at kind of reading each other's minds. And that has happened through having some really terrible. (laughs) That's that's just chamber music on steroids, right? Mm -hmm. Like if that had happened in a woodwind quintet and somebody made a four, four bar or five, four bar, you have to be able to adapt and keep going and still Mm -hmm. make it sound good and continue phrasing and continue Mm -hmm. making beautiful music. And, and that's what makes a great chamber group is not the, the lack of imperfection, but the adaptability to make it still the same work of art in spite of the little flaws. Well, and I think the value of mistakes is really shown here, too, because if you, you know, a lot of people will start to get into something like looping and I feel like they'll be really turned off by their sort of need to learn the software or need to edit out a mistake or redo a loop or something. But if these things happen live, it's important you know how to get out of them. Exactly. You know? Yeah. So... Yeah, yeah. We, we've had some interesting close calls on stage. And sometimes, you know, we've had... We had a, and we've bombed. We've had, I mean, like, sometimes it just completely stops working and then no sound comes out anymore. We have to go, all right, everybody, let's do that one again. Like, and, and that's okay. Because you kind of have to learn through those moments that you can survive and that you can keep going. Right. And I think that's what is really scary about live electronics, like processed electronic music, not just like playing along with a backing track. 
Um, but to actually have a microphone on you and that the piece of music is dependent on how this rhythm goes because then that rhythm comes back. The processing of the live sound makes it really, really nerve wracking. <laughs> In the classical world, it seems like if these sort of things happen on stage, it's kind of like the end of someone's career. But but in an electronic or contemporary setting, it's often just something that happens like you got and I, I think it's totally part of the live performance and it lets you kind of relate to the musicians a bit. It makes them more approachable. And I, I don't personally judge, you know, someone's musicianship because the looper pedal screwed up or something <laughs> like it's not, but, but, but what do you think's different about this genre? You always shoot for perfection. And I think what it gives us is a, a positive attitude uh, that we bring to our performances all the time. And so I can't tell you how many really, truly fantastic master musicians I've heard play. Um, so like someone will come to UTA and give a really fantastic, high level, incredible recital and we'll go backstage and they'll be like, oh, I can't believe how terrible that went. You know, and it's just like negativity, negativity, negativity. And I was like, everyone in the audience loved it. You know, and it, I think that no live performance is ever perfect. And so I, I think it's important to be able to continue making music otherwise. And so that you are constantly striving for for perfection and the better your ear gets the better you get um but and, you keep going no matter what and that's another way that we kind of you know we both still struggle with that uh, you know well but it's it seems to be on different days like some days we'll have performances where one of us will just be you know struggling with i didn't do great or that didn't go well and we you know it's another beautiful part of chamber music is you can kind of balance that out and lift each other up and, and, you know, say, no, you know, it was great. And here's all the things that were good about it when the other one is kind of down on it for some reason. Yeah. It's amazing how inside your mind, the performance can be very different than what actually came out the end of your horn. <laughs> so the looper keeps you honest. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. So, you know what, I, I want to get into more of what the studio is like, but I have one more question first about sort of the live element and uh, the technical aspects here. And that is when you, when you do looping, the problem I've had with my clarinet and the looper, I obviously have no problem with the guitar and the looper, and strangely <laughs> enough, I don't really have any problem with the voice in the looper, but because clarinet's less directional, I have a lot of problem with needing to turn the mic up too high and then getting either feedback or my old sounds are running into the new sounds, and I, I it's very difficult. So what are some techniques that you've used to get a clean sound into the looper? Like you said, you don't use pickups, so, so maybe what microphone or what, what do you do? Well, um, the microphones that I have for my bass clarinet are the AMT BCS. Uh, and so they're incredibly, they're directional and, uh, I have them snapped onto my bell and I have a second one snapped onto my upper joint. Um, and so we do that, but we also have to make sure that we use in-ear monitors as opposed to like, um, a monitor, monitor or something so that we don't have, we call that loop bleed. Mm, yeah, um, bleed is the word. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we prevent that by using in-air monitors and making sure our speakers are far away from us. Um, and so that's just the quality of the microphones that I use. But also because we didn't start with those because those are expensive. I was going to say they're, they're very it. expensive. Yeah, <laughs> they're worth it. Um, and frankly, in the world of what music costs to make, I mean, I spent $10,000 on my bass clarinet. What's another $1,000 on a microphone? You know, like my mouthpiece was $800. Like, so it, it, in my view, it's just sort of like another piece of equipment. Like music is expensive. Well, that's but worth we, mentioning, you know. <laughs> yeah. But we started with much cheaper microphones on microphone stands placed at specific places, mm -hmm. not clipped onto. I use a headset mic. 
um, and um, Audio-Technica headset mic um, so that I can, you know, kind of like make beatbox and mouth percussion and stuff and play and talk and all of that um, and still have these in my hands. Um, but we started just standing really still yes. <laughs> with a microphone <laughs> on a stand um, and it, you know, it worked. It wasn't, it wasn't great. We got a lot more freedom to communicate physically when we got the wireless. Um, yes. And I think that's what allowed us to sort of be free and make chamber music um, is the wireless mics because we just had to, well, we first of all had to face away from each other like if you go look if you really want to dig through <laughs> old school youtube videos is uh like some of our very first performances is we had mics on like two different sides of the stage and we were like facing away from each other because we so, only had one soft step pedal that we were sharing too <laughs> <laughs> um but that was hard and so you just have to like kind of get your face right up in the mic and never leave it uh so i mean in that sense the quality of the microphone that you have really makes a big difference just like the quality of reed that you have, the quality of mouthpiece that you have makes a big difference in your sound. Just think of it as another piece of equipment. Yeah, I think it's important. I mean, people, we're in a world where people will spend $1,200 on a ligature, you know, or more. <laughs> so maybe five to $800 for a really, really high quality microphone that's going to last your career is, is pretty reasonable, you know? And Absolutely. the microphone, you know, attaches the way that it needs to so you can do what you need to do, you know? Yes. So we're, so that we, you know, we very much needed the freedom to look at each other, face each other, move around, do a lot, walk on stage, walk off stage, you know, kind of a lot of different things. Um, and so we had to kind of find what worked perfectly for what we needed. Mm -hmm. So that's a bit what it was like to play live. Um, what's it like to record this kind of music in the studio? Was it a completely different experience or just sort of like taking a recording of the live performance or what was it like for you guys? You know, a little bit of both. We uh, we made the decision that we wanted to record it as close to live as we could um, in terms of rather than recording each loop separately and kind of putting it together like a pop album, we wanted to make it as authentic as possible. Um, so we kind of um, used all of our same software in terms of the pedals and things like that. But then we were routed through the studio microphones and, you know, soundboard and all of that. Um, so we kind of had a combination. So there was some editing capability, obviously, that we don't have when we perform live, but we did try there. And there's two tracks on the album we just recorded straight through in one take. Um, well, because so. I think there's sort of two camps about how you can record classical music, right? A lot of classical musicians will try and get the, the same acoustic environment that you would get on stage, you know, so that you have sort of the room mic'd and then the players who are making the album will play as just as they would on a stage. Um, or you sort of can do a, more of a pop or jazz approach to it where you can just mic and put individual musicians in the recording booth, have them record their part and then put it all together, layer it together later so that you can adjust volumes and you can adjust balance and intonation and stuff like that. So we chose the first way so that it was more authentic to the live performance. Mm -hmm. And do you prefer playing live or do you prefer being in the studio or kind of a mix of both or no preference? I, I think we like performing live. I mean, they were both great, but we we're both 
performers who love to perform and love the energy from the audience. And we like to talk to the audience and kind of banter with each other. And, you know, it's kind of a whole mm-hmm. experience that we really enjoy. So well, I, and that's where the adrenaline rush comes from, mm-hmm. right? The studio life. Yeah. So if you mess up in the studio, you can go back and fix it. But um, so there's just another level of live performance that we really but enjoy. We had a spectacular producer, Dan Cavanaugh at UTA Records, and he put up with us. We're a lot to handle. Yes. And uh, <laughs> he was, he was spectacular and and uh you would interact with us and tell you know be our therapist tell us we needed to go to counseling that day tomorrow (laughs) so this actually is a great segue into the last thing i wanted to ask you about is uh i know that you do some educational and outreach stuff with your music how is that uh interpreted and and what do you feel you're providing the kids that they don't get in other sort of uh musical settings that they're presented with Well, we like to do, we do a lot of um, kind of like flute days and clarinet days, workshops type things um, at universities. And I think, I think what, it's really fun to provide them with, with kind of something that's different than, you know, what they usually get. So kind of this fusion type of music crossover and, um, and sometimes we'll do fun little covers of like Game of Thrones or something that they recognize. (laughs) Um, and you know, it's, it's really fun to show them kind of a world maybe outside of their band music that they're used to or classical music that they're used to. Um, and just kind of show them what is, possible in the music world and and you know it's it's a lot of fun and and it's fun to see you know we'll pull people up on stage to you know do some looping um themselves and they're always so the eyes get really big and when they get to play with themselves for the first time and they just think it's really cool and a lot of fun and and i think fun is the operative word i think that this is a big part of my personal teaching philosophy is that making music should be fun and there should be an element of joy in it right because this career field can be so difficult to make it in and there's a lot of self-loathing that goes on in practice rooms sometimes (laughs) and wondering like you know, there are 50 million clarinet players out there that are just as good as me. And there's only about five jobs open right now. How in the world am I ever going to make it? So I think it's really important to um, have an element of joy in your music making. And I think that Woodwired and just the excitement about electronic music and the idea that there is you can make your own pathway mm-hmm. in music, whether it's through chamber music or through creating your own pieces, something that just brings a level of creativity to what can be seen as something that's sort of a very dark pathway <laughs> for people. And so we try to have an element of that in our educational outreach. You know, I love that sort of making your own path comment, because I feel like that's becoming more and more important um, mm-hmm. in, in this day and age, you know, there's not necessarily a job just waiting for you out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and a few people, you know, go into music for the money per se, like, it's not like you're going to become, you know, <laughs> Bill Gates or something in music or in music <laughs> for most people, you know, but yeah. they do it for reasons of other sorts of self-fulfillment, but it's super important that you can still make a living, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Which is a really, really hard element. So what advice would you have for students who are trying to make their own path? I would say find something that you are endlessly interested in. And even if it feels like it doesn't correlate with clarinet playing, even if it feels like it doesn't correlate with any kind of job that currently exists or it's not orchestral or anything like that, find something that you are personally interested in, whether it's video game music or electronics or who knows, I can't even come up with it for you, but something that you have endless energy for. Mm -hmm. And then 
try and, you know, incorporate that into your music making and you will find a niche for yourself. And I would say just, just be open to, so to, to everything, listen to every kind of music, um, go to as many performances as you can, not just classical, you know, take classes in jazz improv, even if you know nothing about jazz and have no interest in it. I mean, it just, just take, you know, be well-rounded and be, you just don't know when opportunities are going to pop up, um, for you. And it's, I don't know, it's incredibly satisfying to, to go perform with Woodwired and, kind of, we kind of look at each other and go, we did this, like we created this. And, um, it's really, really fun. And we get to travel with our very best friend all the time and like mm -hmm. hang out and perform and have a blast and teach people. And it's, I don't know, it's really, and I never would have seen this specific group for myself when I was in college, mm -hmm. I, you know, couldn't have dreamed of it. I love that. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back for the lightning round. If you're like most clarinet players, you're probably looking to improve your breath support, tone, technique, and enjoyment of the clarinet. You can do all of this by joining Dr. Wesley Ferreira and his new Air Revelation training video series. It comes with a device called a spirometer, and I've had great success with my students using this and helping them visualize the breath support and the tonguing techniques, which are otherwise a little bit abstract and difficult to discuss. To learn more about the program, check out my conversation with Wesley on episode 41 of the podcast, and also head to clarinet.com links. I've put up a page of resources for clarinet players, and for the Air Revelation program, if you use code clarinet10 at checkout, You'll save 10% and help support the podcast at the same time with your purchase. Again, that's clarinet.com slash links, and don't forget to use code clarinet10 at checkout. And now on to the lightning round for today's episode. The first question is, if I were to walk over to your music stand right now, what would I find on it? Right now, I have uh, the entire Indiana Jones uh, flute part on my music stand because I'm playing it this week with the Fort Worth Symphony. So I am practicing that and uh, Anderson etudes, trying to whip myself into shape for all the flute players out there. Um, yeah. <laughs> for the flute player out there listening. Yeah. <laughs> all both of you guys, this is for you. Um, I am in love with Alessandro Carbonari's book the tone of art and technique of tone the the blue book i just adore it and so i've just been practicing long tones because it's the end of the school year and i finally have time to do that <laughs> second question is what piece of music or album changed your life irreversibly for me it was um william bennett um I, a cd of william bennett's um where he's playing um opera fantasies and i it his his sound totally changed my concept of, of flute sound and just the idea of a huge, he has a really signature sound and that really, really kind of changed my sound concept. For me, it was the Larry Combs and Eddie Daniels put out this CD called the American clarinet. And it was a sort of duet CD. And I loved it because, you know, like Eddie Daniels is a jazz guy and Larry Combs, obviously orchestral master. And they play together so well, even though they're sort of from different backgrounds. And on the CD, they just kind of goof around and improv and like they giggle you know, <laughs> all the time on it. And I just thought um, that was so much fun. And of course, they both sound really beautiful and are really incredible players. But just the idea of how much fun they had making that made me realize that music is for me. <laughs> if you could play any instrument other than clarinet or flute, I guess, which would it be and why? For me, it would be cello. I 
just, I don't know, the cello makes me like weep. <laughs> a beautiful cello just moves me so much and I I, I love it. Ah, see, I was going to say cello too. Well, I love I that because know. of that. Cello is a popular one. I don't know why. <laughs> There's well, a timbre to it that is just really special to me. And it's got that ten, that sort of male tenor sound that I love so much about bass clarinet. Uh-huh. I, so that sort of correlates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Next best thing after bass clarinet, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Obviously. Um, if you could go back in time to meet any musician, who would it be? Any musician? Um, I would have to say Shostakovich. I just adore everything by Shostakovich, and I find him such a fascinating person who just lives like such an interesting life during a really difficult time. And I, I just would love to talk to him hmm. about his experience. That's really inspirational. I'm not going to give an inspiration. <laughs> I would like to go back in time and meet a man named Mr. Charles. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Charles was uh, one of the very first documented clarinet performers. I, I only learned this on like my master's degree comps or something. But like that was the first recorded name. We don't know his first name. It's lost to history. Um, someone that toured playing clarinet and that he was the first like famous clarinet player. So I know would like to meet him and ask him what his first name was and what he played. <laughs> <laughs> when was this? Um, well, apparently I didn't study for my master's comps that well because now I don't remember it. Okay, I guess. Well, I think it was, you know, sometime in the early 18th century. Yeah, it's interesting. Wow. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mr. Charles. Wow. Mr. Charles. Let's go look him up. So while we're back in time, what advice, maybe not as far, but what advice would you guys <laughs> give your younger selves? For me, it would be to calm down a little bit and uh, quit trying to plan every next step of my life. I was just very, very type A and very, you know, concerned about doing everything exactly right and making sure that I was where I needed to be. Um, and I think I would tell myself to calm down and have a little more fun mm-hmm. along See, the way. It goes by fast. <laughs> once again, I'm going to give a contrasting answer to that. I would probably tell my former self to work a little bit harder and practice a little bit more. <laughs> Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, opposites attract. That's why you guys work so well together. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Very, we, yeah in, in a lot of ways, we, we see that. <laughs> what is the best advice you ever received and who gave it to you? For me, it was, it was kind of something I, I alluded to earlier, which was be open-minded and listen to a lot of different kinds of music. Um, and that was, a professor in my undergraduate degree who just really, really encouraged me to take a jazz improv class, which I never thought that I would need. And now I use all of the time and uh, just to not, not put myself in a box ahead of time and uh, be open to all sorts of things that I didn't, don't see myself doing in music. Mm-hmm. Funny how that works. A lot of the stuff you're not sure if you'll use ends up being the most used. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that, the best piece of advice I've ever gotten was actually I was playing for Michael Lewinstern in a master class. And uh, he told me that before I performed, I needed to take a shot of Jack Daniels. <laughs> just to calm down. Well, because, you know, he was saying that, like, you sound good. Here's you're doing all this great stuff. But I was playing really square and really on the front of the beat. So I think that that little piece of advice has floated through my mind every time 
<laughs> before I perform, just because it's so easy to get inside your own head and trip yourself up. If you'll just sort of breathe out for a second and calm down, then, you know, all your practicing is going to take into effect and you're going to have a good performance as long as you have that sort of zen attitude. So we have shot glasses in our in our music. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> a metaphorical shot of Jack Daniels, not a literal shot of Jack Daniels. Fair enough. What is what is one book that you think every clarinetist should read? A book of prose, not not like a exercise book. Well, even though I'm not a clarinetist, I will just answer this as a musician. I um, I adore the book Psycho Cybernetics uh, by Ma- uh, Maxwell Maltz. Uh, it's an old book, um, and it is it it's kind of the mental aspect. Uh, it just it's not specifically about music, but it really changed my. I had to read it in a in a music pedagogy class in my master's degree, and it really it's talking about kind of happiness and what to focus on, and um, it was fantastic mm-hmm. for performers. Um, I'm mine's not so much music oriented, but uh, just sort of like how to approach life is I really, I just got done reading Trevor Noah, his autobiography called Born a Crime, mm-hmm. which Trevor Noah is a host of, of a, a popular TV show. And essentially he was born in um, South Africa under apartheid. So, and he essentially was born a crime because uh, his mother was black and his father was white. And of course it was illegal for him to exist because of the institutionalized racist policies and, um, it's just incredible how far he has come. Like he grew up in horrible segregation and under immense oppression and grew up in a one bedroom, you know, brick building with nine other people and has become this really successful, incredible, yet humble person. And I thought that, you know, anyone that can follow that journey has got some good life advice. So I thought that was a really fantastic book. Thanks for sharing. Anyone interested in those books? I'm, I'm making a list at clarinet.com slash books of all the books that artists have recommended on the show. And uh, maybe one of those two will make it into the new Clarinet book club that's uh, Ooh, I launched last great. month as well. So awesome. very interesting. <laughs> Anything else you guys would like to share before we wrap up? I just want to so. say thank you so much for having us on. This has been a lot of fun. It's been really fun. Thank yeah. you. And thanks for... Thanks for having a flute player on the show. Yeah, I think you <laughs> might be the first. That's true. <laughs> so you can check out their website and their CD recording um, at their website at woodwireduo.com. Or, of course, the In the Loop is the name of the album, and that can be found on uh, iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, CD Baby, Amazon. And I'll put a link to it from the show notes, which will be at clarinet.com. Thank you guys for coming on the show, and I uh, look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much for listening to the Clarinet Podcast. You can find show notes for today's episode at clarinet.com slash 89. If you'd prefer to get access to an early version of the podcast presented in high-resolution audio without any ads, you can upgrade now at clarinet.com slash gold for as little as $1 a month. Of course, I'd also like to welcome you to follow D'Addario Woodwinds on Instagram to check out their Don't Blow It series, which is every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern. And if you'd like to pick up a box of D'Addario Reads, you can head to your local music store or clarinet.com slash reads to buy a box online right now. 
Some exciting news, actually. The Clinique podcast is trending in the What's Hot section on iTunes in Canada. I have no idea how that's possible. I mean, there's probably thousands of music podcasts, and the fact that one specifically about clarinets is trending at all is is pretty amazing. But uh, it's reached as high as, I think, 176 out of 200, uh, the top 200 anyways. So uh, we're not really topping the charts yet, but um, that's actually, yeah, I was pretty surprised by that, and it's definitely good to see. So anyways, thank you so much for listening again. I'm your host, Sean Perrin, signing off from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I hope you'll join me next time for more of what's new and neat with clarinet on the Clarinet Podcast. <laughs>